like I hand them out. Okay. All right, go ahead and grab a seat. All right, let me pray for us, and uh, we will begin. Father, we rejoice that we get to be together this morning. We rejoice that we get to be called your children, that you have drawn us into your family. You have given us not only existence, not only life and breath, but you have given us salvation in your Son. And so we rejoice, and we thank you, and we praise you for that. And this morning, as we turn to this topic of confessions and what they are and what role they play. Um, I pray, Father, that you would uh, bless our time. I pray that we would think well about this topic, that we would think well about the gospel and the communication of the gospel from generation to generation, that we would think well about your word and how to uh, protect and preserve the teaching of it, and particularly in the church. And so we ask for your blessing on this time. We pray that you would uh, do a great work in our hearts today, in our congregation today, We look forward to worshiping in song in a few minutes. We look forward to praying together corporately in a few minutes. And we look forward to hearing the word open and preached to us. We pray that you would do a great work in us even this morning. So we pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and grab a seat, you guys. We've got a couple of extra... Now we are beginning our series, our Sunday School 1989 London Baptist Confession. Today's uh, topic, as you can see on the handout in front of you, is an introduction to confessions in general. And uh, so we're not really going to be talking about the 1689 per se, uh, which is what we're uh, going to be working through. We will start working through that next week in earnest, uh, but at this point, I want on the topic. Um, There is an older version, which is the original um, language and whatnot that I have here that I would uh, would encourage you to read um, as well, but it has some tricky language. And then of the confession, I would encourage you to get one. And um, Right here. I'll go ahead. No, Rick, we find just kind of overseeing the handing out those. Thank you. When I when I'll be teaching through it, I'll I'll mainly be using the original one just because um, I like it better. Um, this one does help with some explanation sometimes uh, as well. So. As those are being handed out, thank you, Rick. Um, That's what we're going to be looking at. But again, today, we're not really going to be digging into uh, the confession per se. We want to talk about the idea of confessions and what are confessions and why would we discuss confession and what's the role, uh, et cetera. And so in order to get there, uh, to move that direction, what I want to do is uh, just kind of work through these questions that you have on your sheet there in front of you and ask the question... First of all, what is a doctrinal statement? Now, you see question number two, there's a relationship between a doctrinal statement and a confession. 
But we're used to the language of doctrinal statement. Parkside has had a doctrinal statement since Parkside has existed. And, um, and so we're more used to that kind of language. Uh, and so what is a doctrinal statement? It may seem like perhaps a really easy question, but maybe not. Thank you, Rick. Yeah, so what it, it is a document that lays out what the church stands for and, and teaches, the, their views on the scriptures, right? And so um, that's a doctrinal statement. I think that adequately reflects our doctrinal statement uh, historically here at Parkside. Did you have something to, add to that, add to that Andy? Yeah. So it's, it's a statement. I mean, it's right there in the name, right? It's a statement about the doctrine of the church, right? The doctrine that that church is, gonna, is going to teach, is going to hold, uh, represents the teaching of that church, etc. That's the idea of a doctrinal statement. Um, and, and so what is its purpose? As, as we look farther, be, <clears throat> farther beyond that simple question, what is the purpose of a doctrinal statement? Why would, why would churches have doctrinal statements? Yeah. 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 So, so you, as a, a you know a prospective member or prospective attender, want to examine and see what they teach on this topic, that topic, this topic, so that you can assess whether it's um, whether whether you agree with that, whether that's a church you want to go to. Right, a place um, that, that you want to submit to, leaders you want to submit to, and, and things you want to hear taught. Can I help you figure out what you believe? Yeah. Sometimes you just say, well, I'm a Christian, and you right. Right, you've got a whole breadth of people who would call themselves Christians, right? And this explains kind of where, uh, what, what is meant more specifically by that, uh, at, least, by that. I- at least in this church, yes. Yeah. Other purposes? Yes. Yeah. So it, it, it provides accountability, and that, that protects the congregation. They know what they're going to hear uh, because it's spelled out in the doctrinal statement, right? And so it, it provides that accountability to hear uh, what, uh, what, is going, what is laid out in the doctrinal statement is going to be represented in the teaching, okay? Where does a doctrinal statement arise from? Where does it come from? Well, how is it crafted, I should say? Because, because it, it should be biblical, right? We'll, we'll, we'll agree on that right off the bat. Um, but how is it derived? Because my Bible is really, really long, and the doctrinal statement of a church may be relatively long, but not, not like that. So wh- where does it come from? Yeah. Summaries. Summaries. Okay, but who, who makes those summaries or who, who, who draws those? So the elders might, might do that, right? Yeah. D- depending upon how it's, how it's done, there's different, different types of church polity, right, that they might come up, come up with uh, their doctrinal statement, right? Um, but uh, they, they tend to be um, developed or presented... Um, by a church or an organizational, the, the leadership of that church or that organization. 
not each new generation perhaps, but there's, there's, uh, the church subscribes to this, but it came from somewhere, some body of teachers, of elders, put this together at some point, right? Mandy, did you have a hand up? Yeah, so, so there's, a, there's reference to church history as well, right? Um, what we find is that with doctrinal statements, typically, they tend to be uh, relatively modern. Okay, now we're, we're from Nevada. Nevada's not that old. Um, and uh, we in the West in general, uh, you know, we, we don't think in terms of hundreds of years or thousands of years. We, we tend to think much in, in much briefer terms than those. And really that's the case with many doctrinal statements. Like, for example, the doctrinal statement that, that Parkside has um, was adopted on January 1st of 1989, and it was taken from another church, uh, Grace Community Church in Southern California, and, and, and it was put together by the elders for that church, right? And so it's kind of, is that recent? Maybe, maybe it reaches back to the 70s, that particular well, is that recent? I, you know, I'm from the 70s. And I'm not even 50 yet, so it's not that long ago, right? But it seems it tends to be more recent um, when you have a doctrinal statement. But it's intended to be an explanation of what a church teaches, what a church believes, etc., laid down in a document for all to see, so that when you're visiting a church, so when you're listening to preaching. Right? So when you're trying to figure out how to understand what Scripture teaches on this topic, you will go to that church's doctrinal statement and you will find out what they believe on that topic. Um, secondly, second question there, what is a confession of faith and how does it differ from a doctrinal statement? On one hand, they might, might be the same thing. They play the same role, right? They play, they're, they're a representation of, of the doctrine of the church. But when we talk about, um, like historically for Parkside, when we talk about the doctrinal statement, we're talking about the document that you can get from the Welcome Center, you can read online, etc. We're talking about that document, right? Um, we don't call that the confession, right? We don't call that a confession. So what is a confession of faith? Yeah. So, so, right. So, a confession is a document, but it tends to be less summary than a doctrinal statement. It tends to be longer and more developed than a doctrinal statement. I'm speaking in, in speaking in general terms here, right? Um, but it plays the same role. It's a standard of what the church teaches. It's a document that's the standard. Uh, a standard of what the church teaches, an explanation, a summary of what the church teaches, right? Um, And tends to be more detailed than a doctrinal statement. Doctrinal statement tends to be more kind of bullet points almost or summary, whereas a confession, you know, we handed out a book, not a stapled couple of pieces of paper, right? It's it's longer, right? Um, What about if we think about the history of, of confessions. We talked a little bit about the history of the Parkside doctrinal statement, or of doctrinal statements in general tend to be more recent of, uh, in origin typically. But when we look at the uh, historic Protestant confessions, um, they arose back during the time of the Reformation, which is in the 16th century, or maybe came about in the 17th century, uh, shortly after the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And so what you have 
when you look at a, at a confession, at least the one we're looking at, and if you look at Westminster, you look at Savoy and some other, other similar kinds of things, they, they are derived in history. And, and from our perspective, it seems like ancient history almost. We go all the way back to the 17th century, right? Seems like uh, that's, that's pretty old history, but they arose from a particular context. You see what, if you think about, you know, there was basically just the Roman Catholic Church until Luther, right? And Luther, in uh, 1517, he nails his uh, 95 theses on the door, etc. And that starts this whole thing, kind of. That's an oversimplification. But starts this Protestant Reformation. What happens is you have these men uh, and their families and their churches who end up leaving the, the Roman Catholic Church, whether because they were kicked out or they left on their own. Well, now they're left with the question, so you guys aren't Catholic. You don't go to the Roman Catholic. So what are you? What do you even believe? Right? And so they needed to be able to explain to people, their own people, who were, you know, if, if Martin Luther was your pastor and you were part of his church that's now been kicked out of the Roman Catholic Church and you're thinking, you know, my cousin over here and everybody else I know over here is Roman Catholic and we're not Roman Catholic. So, pastor, tell us, what, are, what, what, do you, what, do you, what doctrine are you representing? And so the, the confessions are the efforts by those leaders to lay out those doctrines that, that they believe, right? So Luther and Calvin and others um, of the Reformers were trying to explain what we believe and that it is not a new thing. That what we believe goes back to the Bible and goes back to the early church. So that Calvin would quote ridiculous amounts from the uh, early church fathers to, to demonstrate that what he's teaching is not new. It goes right back to not only the Bible, but 2nd century, 3rd century, 4th century, 5th century. It's what the church has taught. And what they were doing was demonstrating what they believed so that people could get a grip on what they believe and see this is not something new. That's for their own people. There are also people from the outside who were looking and saying, you guys are just heretics. Look, you're not the Roman church won't even have you or you've left the Roman church, so you guys must be crazy off the wall. And they would say, well, here's our doctrine. Where are we crazy? Where are we off the wall? Here's, here are the things that we believe. And so they would lay out those um, statements of faith along those lines so that people could see what exactly they believed. And that is one of the reasons why they tend to be more expansive, right? Because you're trying to say in response to the accusation that you guys have just come up with something new. And in theology, new ideas are usually bad ideas, almost always. So how is it? that we can defend ourselves against coming up with new ideas and new fangled religion or whatever. Well, let's spell out in detail what we believe, and you can examine it against historic Christianity, against your Bible, and you can see if what we believe lines up or not. You can see if it's actually new. And, you, and, and so they wanted to be detailed in their exposition. That's why they laid it out um, as detailed as they did, so that you could examine it point by point and see that there's nothing crazy here. This is biblical Christianity right? It's not something new. It's not something off the wall. And so from our perspective in the 2023, when we're looking at a confession and we're, we're seeing that it arose at a point in history during particular uh, struggles that went on during the Reformation, after the Reformation and whatnot, we can look from our time 
in 2023 and look back and see that these confessions now, because of the centuries, have been tested by time, right? People have been able to examine them. People have been able to attack them, to argue against them, to find uh, any doctrinal problems in them for hundreds of years. That means they're time-tested. The fact that they, they still exist and they still represent biblical Christianity means that for us, um, it, it gives us that time-tested sense of continuity with what Christianity has always taught, right? So rather than going back to perhaps the 70s, if we can imagine such a, such a distant time, right? We go all the way back to the 17th century, and in doing so, the 17th century document points us all the way back to the beginning, so we can see that continuity all the way through, right? And that means something else. That means that when we look at a confession, we tend to see that it's talking about what are the most important doctrinal topics and not the fad topics of the day. For example, when I was in, uh, at school in, uh, at Moody, I wrote a paper on um, angels, right? I had a class on angelology, demonology, and, um, and so here was this class. And so I wrote this whole big paper on angels, right? Because this was early to mid-90s, and uh, there were books right and left about angels in the, in the world. You remember it, right? Yeah. If you read Christian books in that time, in late 80s and up to the mid-90s, angels were all the rage, right? That was a big deal. So if you were crafting your doctrinal statement, you planted a church, you moved to a new place that didn't have a church, whatever, you're planting a church, you would be tempted to write about angels extensively because it's a big deal. People were talking about your guardian angel. People were talking about how many angels does, you know, are involved in this and what are their names and, and what's the hierarchy and all this stuff that now we don't really care about. The church is not consumed with the idea of angels like it was at the time. It was a fad. It was a theological fad. And so what was a big discussion for that 10 years, perhaps, in the, in the broader scheme, you realize, well, you know, that, that wasn't that big a deal. <laughs> and so I don't want a whole section on angels, perhaps. You know, give me a page in my doctrinal statement on angels, whereas if I had written a doctrinal statement at that time, I might do so. And when we look at a confession, we're looking at something that was written in a... In, in, in a context of dealing with the most important doctrinal uh, difficulties and uh, discussions and controversies about salvation, about the Bible, about the nature of God, about the nature of man, etc., etc., those most important things that were put in the confessions at that time. And we see that century after century after century have found those documents to be very valuable as an explanation of the faith they hold to for a confession of faith for them, right? And so uh, that's, that's a real value that we have there um, uh, and a difference between a confession of faith that tends to be historic from hundreds of years ago as opposed to a doctrinal statement which tends to perhaps go back 50 years, maybe, maybe 100 years, not usually, right? You have this historical perspective that helps us um, avoid fad topics and culturally specific issues and, and things like that. Um, as well, uh, a, a value and, and uh, a difference about a confession of faith. For example, if we think about the, um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which um, 
bears a lot of resemblance to the confession that you have in your hand there. Uh, so Westminster uh, came out first, and it was written by um, uh, Presbyterians uh, for the most part. And so it's, it's got language in there about baptism and some church polity kind of issues that are very different. But, but what happened was at, with, the, with Westminster is there was a, a struggle going on in their nation. And so the, the parliament itself, the government itself, called together 121, what were called divines, basically scholars, Christian scholars, doctrinal experts, etc., called together 121 of them, and, and as well as 10 members of the House of Lords, 20 members of the House of Commons, and then eight other non-voting uh, members from the uh, representatives from Scotland, called together the cream of the crop and said, we're going to have this uh, time together to work through what ought to be our confession for our church, say these people um, in, in England, right? And so they, they end up putting together the Westminster Confession of Faith. Well, so if you think about, you know, we, in, over the years, the elders at Parkside have discussed, you know, tweaking our doctrinal statement. And I look around the table and I'm thinking, well, I, I respect these men greatly. You know, at the most, there were four of us at one time. And I'm, but I'm looking at the four of us and I'm thinking, do we have the chops to really work through and understand what are all the potential um, consequences of making that change? Or this doctrinal expression, do, do, do I trust that the four of us know how uh, and have, have the wisdom and have the foresight and have the experience and the education and, and the understanding to be able to word it in such a way that it's not going to cause a problem down the road? And so I was always hesitant to do that because I'm, I'm thinking, you know, we're just four guys from Fallon, right? Now, the Lord can use four guys from Fallon, right? Uh, the, the Lord, the Lord can, uh, can do those kinds of things. But when I look back at, at the Westminster Assembly and I see that here you had 121 of these people, all PhD types, who were churchmen. They weren't just living in ivory towers. They were churchmen. They were, they were ministers. They were the ones um, who were pastoring and teaching and writing the books. And, and, and they chose 121 of them and got them together, paid for essentially by the government, arranged by the government, allowed to put, be put together, which in our day would make us very suspicious. <laughs> it, was a, it was a different world and, and different things that they were trying to accomplish. But you see how it provided such, um, uh, such an opportunity for those who do have the insight and the foresight to be able to say, well, if we word it like that, that's going to mean this to these people and this to these people and it's going to provide this opportunity to these other people. It's going, to, it's going to misrepresent what we really mean, so let's word it a little bit different way. Or perhaps this doesn't accurately reflect, uh, you know, the issues of the Trinity or whatever. We, we, we need to be careful to word it like this and not like that. And, and it's sort of, you've got the best minds who are uh, uh, those who are in ministry. They're not just sharp, brilliant people, but they are sharp, brilliant, spirit-led, uh, church-leading people who come together to do this. And so the doctrinal statement, if we can call it that, the confession that they come up with has a greater gravity than, than one that I would come up with, right? When I look around the table in that discussion, the, the issue wasn't, oh, that guy's not smart enough, that guy's not smart enough. I'm thinking, I don't, I don't want my fingerprints on this because I know I'm uh, fallible. I know I'm sinful. I know I'm not smart enough. I know I have enough suspicion about, my, about myself and the influence that I, as one of four, 
would have that, that it makes me very nervous. But when you look back at these confessions, they're done in a different context. They're done in a different, um, by a different body. And not only, uh, not only are the, 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 the quality of the men who are involved in putting this together different, but it has stood the test of time for centuries. For people to look at it and say, uh, boy, Westminster really messed up right here because that allows for this. No. Boy, the 1689 really messed up here because it opens the door for this thing. No. It has stood the test of time because it's been tried for these centuries. And so those are some of the differences between a confession of faith um, and a doctrinal statement. Any, any questions at this point before we move on? We're already 29 minutes into it and two questions. All right, let's press on. Uh, very briefly, a difference between a creed and a confession. A confession is the standard of what a church believes. It's like the book that you have in your hand there. Whereas a creed is a corporate expression of belief in corporate worship services. So like the Apostles' Creed, that's something you could put on the screen or we could have memorized and we could recite that together in service corporately. Right? We're not going to recite this together. We're not going to recite the doctrinal statement uh, that, that histor historically has been Parkside's either. But that's kind of the relationship between creeds and confessions. Next question, very, very important. What's the relationship between a confession and the Bible? What's the relationship between a confession and the Bible? All right, so you've got a confession comes from what's in the Bible, draws from what's in the Bible, meaning the Bible is the authority, right? The Bible is the ultimate source. The Bible is the final authority. The confession is meant to be drawn from that, right? It's intended to give an accurate summary or re reflection of what we believe the Bible teaches, right? And so you've got the Bible as the authority. But when we start asking questions, you know, if I were to ask you what is, what is the ultimate authority for our doctrine, you'd hold up your, your Bible and you'd be right to do so. And then my next question would be, okay, what does the Bible teach about man? your answer is going to be some kind of a summary. All right? So you're not just going to quote, you know, 3,000 Bible verses to me. And if you did, it wouldn't be all that helpful anyway because you've still got to draw the conclusions. You've still got to summarize, right? We draw it all from the Bible. The Bible is the authority, but the confession, or your answer to me of that question, tell me about uh, what does the Bible say about man, is a summary of what the Bible teaches on that topic, okay? So it's summarizing and representing. It gives you a handle that you can hold on to of what we say the Bible teaches on that topic, okay? So it's intended to give an accurate summary, reflection of what the Bible, uh, what we believe the Bible teaches. Now, so we have um, a little guy in our family. He's learning to obey. He's learning about mommy and daddy's authority. And he's at the point, I'm trying not to embarrass him. He's at the point right now where if um, we had a conversation last night where his mom said something and I told him mommy's in charge. In this particular topic, I said mommy's in charge. And he said, God's in charge. <laughs> right? Now he's right. God, God is in charge, right? Absolutely. That's good, good sound theology. 
What he's referencing there is that God is the ultimate authority. What I was referencing was not the ultimate authority. I don't think his mom is the ultimate authority. But in that situation, in that context, his mom is the immediate authority. And he better believe it, (laughs) right? Now, his mom is the immediate authority under the ultimate authority of God. So if she gets out of line or or she tells him to do something that God says not to do or whatever, of course, he has the obligation to obey uh, God and and not mommy. Not that mom would do that, but but on... uh, And so the question now that I want to ask you is, is the confession authoritative for the church? I ask that vaguely on purpose. It's like asking Brennan who's in charge. Yeah. (laughs) Right? It's the same thing. The Bible is the ultimate authority. But we do have a proximate or an immediate authority. And by immediate, I mean the one that's close to us, right? So the Bible is the ultimate authority. And if you ask me as the pastor, uh, what does the Bible say about man? I'm going to give you an answer, right? And, and that answer has got to be consistent with the Bible, but I'm not going to just start reading in Genesis 1.1. I'm going to give you a summary. Is that summary authoritative? Yes, not ultimately, It's not the ultimate authority. And if I were to give you a summary that were inconsistent with the Bible, you'd say, well, but the Bible says this, right? The Bible is ultimately authoritative. And so in that area, your authority, Brennan, broke down, right? Because what you represented wasn't biblical in that topic. And so we need to get, we need to have in our mind, just like Brennan is trying to learn the the, the difference between immediate authority, mom and dad, and ultimate ultimate authority, God, right? We need to, we need to get doctrinal statement to the confession is meant to be authoritative, not infallibly authoritative and not ultimately authoritative. That's only the Bible, but it represents the biblical teaching on the topic. And thus it has an authority in our lives, just like mommy and daddy who give rules to Brennan have authority in his lives. We're not the ultimate authority. We're not the infallible authority, but we have a role of authority. And so if a confession differs from biblical teaching, the Bible is the authority that corrects the confession. The confession doesn't take the place of the Bible. Uh, It doesn't override the Bible. The Bible has corrective authority, ultimate authority, over the the confession itself. But a confession is a systematic presentation, almost like a miniature systematic theology. So when you ask the question, what does the Bible teach about man? You can open up to your confession. You can start reading about man and you'll learn about he's created in God's image, and, uh, but he's fallen and he's, uh, he's got this destiny and he's responsible for his actions and he's got sin. Has, you're going to read all these things that are representative about man himself like a miniature systematic theology. Now, I should have brought, but they're too heavy to carry. I should have brought a big old systematic theology like I've got in my office. They're about that thick, and the section on man will be 350 pages or something, right? Well, that's a full-on systematic theology attempting to explain what the Bible teaches about man. This is a summary, right, one, one you can get your hands on. So the relationship between a confession and the Bible is that the Bible is God's Word. It is the final authority, and a confession, in as much as it accurately represents what the Bible teaches, is a proximate authority or an immediate authority in our lives. All of these have to deal with this issue. We're talking about doctrinal statements. We're talking about creeds. 
We're talking about confessions are dealing with the problem that we all face, that all Christians face. Every Christian parent, every Christian period faces this question, this problem. How can we reliably and faithfully transmit the gospel from one generation to the next? That's the question that ultimately, that's the role that ultimately the confession plays. How can we reliably, faithfully transmit the gospel, the teaching of Scripture, from one generation to the next? Right? Now, the first thing we might think about is just hand them a Bible. Buy them a Bible and have them read it. And thus you have faithfully transmitted the gospel and biblical teaching to the next generation. But is that true? You've given them the Bible and it's all in here. Are they going to understand it rightly? Not completely. Not, not, not completely, right? And there are, there are certain traditions that have valued doing exactly that. There, there's one man who, who said that when he, every time he read the Bible, he wanted to read it like no one had ever read it before. Right? Well, how many things have you learned from your past reading of the Bible? How many things have you learned from your decades in church? How many things have, have you learned from walking with the Lord for all this time that help you read and understand the Bible. And what this person is saying is, I want to wash all of those things out and come to it fresh. Now, I get, I get the, 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 the sentiment behind that. We want it to be fresh, right? We don't want to bring our preconceived notions to make the Bible squish into our preconceived notions. But think, think about this for a moment. I, was, I got, got the mail yesterday, and in the mail um, was a credit card offer for my 20-year-old daughter. What should I do with that? Now, what should I do with that? Right? As a parent, as one who has dealt with credit cards, one who has, has answered those kinds of questions, what am I going to do with that? Do I just hand it to her and say, here, there's some mail for you? And never talk about credit cards? Never talk about debt? Never talk about interest? Never talk about any of that stuff? Or do I perhaps take the lessons I have learned the hard way in life and say, here's a credit card offer, and that's what this means. Here are the dangers, here are the other dangers, and here are some more dangers. And they're not telling you about any of them in this letter, right? We're going to educate our child because, because that's a way to walk right into trouble, right? You don't hand it, uh, we, we don't hand things to our children. Or think about relationships, right? When, when, uh, when you have a child who, who uh, you know, s- starts getting interested in dating or whatever, Good luck to you. No, I look back at my life and I say, well, I, I can tell you some, you know, some, some bad turns to avoid, okay? I can tell you, I can give you some wisdom, not, not just what I've learned in Scripture, but even just practically in my own life that will help you avoid some of the pitfalls I didn't avoid. Is a parent going to teach their children that stuff? Yes, absolutely, 100%, right? So we want to teach our children, well, it's the same in the history of the church, the church fathers are called that for a reason. It's as if uh, the church throughout church history are our parents, or at least older siblings, who have gone down these roads before. And they've gotten their credit card offer in the mail, and they've signed up for it, and they've, went and they've gone and bought a bunch of stuff, and then they paid the price, right? Theologically speaking. Why, why wouldn't we as the younger siblings want to listen to the advice that they've got to give. 
Because we can look back at the doctrinal controversies over the years and we can see where they, they tried this with the, with the deity of Christ. They tried this with the humanity of Christ. They tried this with the... Uh, and, and, and on and on. You see the consequences throughout church history where there are just, just crashes right and left, right and left. And, and what has been passed down to us is the, the hard-won truths and experience of older siblings, of parents who can come and say, you see that credit card in the mail? Here's what it means. And here's where it leads if you follow that path. So the question that we're answering is, how can we reliably and faithfully transmit the gospel from one generation to the next? And the answer is, we need to write it down. We need to codify it. We need to explain it to the future generations. We need to do so thoroughly. Lay out what we believe, and here's why we believe it. Lay out what we believe to be an accurate representation of Scripture to future generations to protect so that they can avoid some of those pitfalls that we in our time have gone through and that the church throughout the history of, uh, of time has, has gone through, right? That's what a confession does. It's like, it's like parenting, okay? All right, so we move on to number five here, and we see that the very earliest church, I mean within the time of the New Testament, dealt with this same exact question. We may be surprised. So I'm going to divide us up. We've got uh, several different passages here. If I could have um, someone from the front two tables here look up Jude, verse 3. Back two tables over here. If you guys could look up 1 Timothy uh, 1.15. And then Mark, if I could have you look up Luke 19.10, please. Um, in the front row here. Um, and, and if I could have you guys look up 1 Timothy 3.1. Okay. And then uh, back row, you're going to look up Acts 14, 21 to 23. Front two tables, you're going to look up uh, 1 Timothy uh, 4, 7, and 9. Um, and let's have... Hey, Megan. I'm going to have you look up Matthew tw uh, 10, 22, please. No, no, I'm sorry. Luke 18, Me Megan. Luke 18, 29 to 30. Uh, back two tables, if you look up 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. And then um, on the bench over there, if I could have you guys look up Matthew 10, 22. And I'll pull up Titus 3, 4 through 8. All right, so here we have evidence within Scripture itself. So Paul is writing, most of these are uh, the pastoral epistles here, and, and Paul writing for, for most of these. And what he's doing is he's writing letters to, to Timothy, writing to Titus, and he's giving them advice on how to pastor in, in the churches where they're pastoring, right? So the church has already grown up in those areas. Uh, apostles have already gone through. The gospel has been proclaimed. People have come to faith in Christ. There is already the church existing in that area, and that church is functioning as a church. Now, you can see the great concern that, uh, that Paul has uh, and these, these other men also have with uh, uh, pastoring those churches to see those churches grow up well. And so what we get a peek at is how they did that. So what does Jude 3 tell us? I could have somebody read for us Jude 3. All right, so here you have 
you have a letter being written to a church that already exists encouraging them to contend for the faith that was delivered. Like it came in the mail, like it's, it's definable, right? It, it, it wasn't just, you know, handing them the Old Testament and saying contend for that. The idea is contend for the faith once delivered. There's a summary. You get the idea that it was a package that was delivered. Contend for that. Right? It was expounded to you. It was explained to you. You get an idea that there's a content, a set content for what is the faith. Now, if I could have someone read uh, 1 Timothy 1.15. All right, so here in, uh, in Paul's letters, in the pastoral epistles here, we have several of these um, statements that are uh, the faith, faithful sayings. This is a trustworthy statement. This is a trustworthy statement. This is a trustworthy statement. Paul is writing to Timothy, who's pastoring a church uh, there in Ephesus, and he, he's telling him, you've heard this thing taught, that is a good teaching. That is a good teaching. I affirm it. It is a trustworthy uh, statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now, is that a, a summary of doctrine? It's a very, very brief summary. But who has Luke 19 verse 10? Read that for us, please. All right, so... Jesus himself says what he came to do, to seek and to save the lost. Those are the words of Jesus from the time of Jesus, obviously. And here you have the New Testament church, the very, very early church, uh, reflecting on that. And so Paul's saying, hey, you've heard this saying, it's a good one. Deserving of full acceptance, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He's giving his stamp. He's like, that's an excellent teaching. That's an excellent creed. That's an excellent summary of what Jesus uh, is teaching. And so we learn about why Jesus came. What about 1 Timothy uh, 3.1? The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. All right, so here we have another trustworthy saying, right, where Paul is concerned about the ministry of the local church, the organization of the local church, that it is a good thing. You've heard that it was said, uh, and, and I'm saying that is a good statement. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. God wants to organize his church. And we see uh, from Acts chapter 14, verse uh, 21 through 23. Who has that? I think I... All right, so were they appointing elders in there? They appointed elders as they went? Thank you. Dramatic pause to increase the effect. I appreciate that. All right, so here when Paul was, was on the field, he would go through and he would preach and he would see people come to Christ and he would appoint elders in those churches. So you see in his practice early on, he valued that thing. And now what he's saying is he's recognizing and writing to Timothy, hey, you've heard this saying, 
that if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And I'm saying that is a good statement. That is a good summary of biblical teaching on that topic. He's giving his stamp of approval to that creed. So the church was talking about, hey, it seemed like Paul, when he would come through, he would do these things. He would appoint elders that God wants to have leaders over his churches. And Paul's saying, that's exactly right. That is a trustworthy saying. That's a good creed for you to hold on to, right? So you have the church reflecting on a biblical teaching. You have the church reflecting on a, the practice of the apostles, the practice and teaching of Christ, and them drawing some concluding statements. And Paul comes through and says, excellent, that is good. Write that down, right? That's trustworthy. They're developing, they're reflecting upon, they're summarizing, they're giving explanations, and Paul is giving his approval to that. First Timothy uh, 4, 7 through 9. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily <coughs> training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So here you have the same thing hap happen again. Uh, can we have someone read to us from uh, Luke 18, 29 to 30? So Jesus, talking to his disciples, gave this basic teaching, right? That there's no one who has, who has uh, left these things that will, who, who won't be repaid in this life, but certainly in the life to come, in, in, in eternal life, or in the, in the life to come, eternal life, right? And so here you have this saying is trustworthy. Paul is reflecting on that, and he's, he's saying, look, you need to have some kind of discipline. Train yourself for godliness. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. They had reflected upon the teaching of Christ, and they had come up with this statement. He's saying, that is a trustworthy statement. I give it my approval. Write that down and put it in the book right? So they have, they have uh, thought on it, and he is giving his approval of it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to see the same thing. Verses 11 through 13. You see how in your Bibles, in my Bible, it's set apart because it's like poetry. It's, it recognizes that it's a different genre than what's found around it. It recognizes there's something special about it. There's something particular about it. It's a creed, right? And if we have someone read uh, the, the Matthew passage there, 1022... And, and you could go on and look at other passages that are very similar. What it seems like here is the church had, had dwelt upon, thought about Jesus' teaching on this topic, and they had put together this little creed. And Paul comes along and says, that's a great, that's a great creed. I approve. This statement is trustworthy. Right? So the church has always, and we can see the same thing in Titus chapter 3, uh, the church has always reflected on the teachings of the Bible and then reorganized it in their mind so that they can remember it, so that they can easily teach it, so that they can summarize it, so that they can apply it in different ways, so that it will be useful to them because it has a handle. That is the nature of a creed. That is the nature of a confession. This has always been going on. 
And here we have it specifically approved by the inspired authors of the New Testament. Well, now we don't have the ability for it to be officially approved by the inspired authors of the New Testament, but we still have the fact that Paul approved of that, uh, that impulse, and thus we ought to do the same thing that the very earliest church did in reflecting on the teachings of Scripture and reducing it down so that we can get, we can get it systematized, we can get a handle on it, we can, we can explain it, we can understand it, and we can apply it, and we can teach it more easily to subsequent generations. All right, you have a list there. Number six, some of the benefits of having a, a clear confession. I'm just going to read through those. You've got them written down there. Um, the first benefit is that it answers the question, what do we believe the Bible teaches? Right? We answer with a confession. We don't answer by starting to read from Genesis 1.1 and then just reading for 72 hours or however long it takes to read through the Bible, right? We, we, we give an answer. We answer with a confession. We answer with, with an explanation of what we believe the Bible teaches. Secondly, it allows our system of belief to be stated, to be examined, to be defended, to be corrected. Now, that's a big deal. We're laying out what we believe and other people can come against it and say, it's wrong because of this. Or they can say, do you really mean that? Or they can test it in this way. Or they can say, oh, well, at least now I know exactly where you stand on these things. Right? It can be stated, examined, defended, and corrected. That's very important. For us to lay the cards on the table, to fly our colors with what we believe. It's not enough to make vague statements about, uh, uh, you know, as if um, we're going to say, you know, something, something vague about doctrine or something vague about Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Well, yes, absolutely, Jesus is Lord. And here's what we mean by that. Right? We're going to lay it out. We're going to spell it out so that it can be stated, examined, defended, corrected. Next, it tells the congregation what they can expect to hear taught and preached. It lays it out. Right? So that when you show up, you know... Uh, what you can expect to hear taught and preached. Next, it delineates what we consider to be the important doctrines in the church. Right? So angelology, angels exist in the Bible. There are, uh, there are actual beings and whatnot, but, but relatively rarely spoken of in Scripture, so it's going to get that kind of play, that kind of time in, in the confession. The things that are of greatest significance, the Word of God itself, the nature of God, the, the, what man is like, how salvation works, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to see those things laid out. It, it, it delineates what we consider to be the important doctrines in our church. Uh, next, it defines one church in relation to another. So when you're going to town and you're looking at doctrinal statements, you're you're seeing, well, this one believes in infant baptism, for example, or, or, or that you can lose your salvation, or that uh, baptism saves you, or that, you know, you've got these, or it distinguishes between the two, or be between a number, right? Defines one church in relation to another. Uh, likewise, it distinguishes orthodoxy and heterodoxy. So orthodoxy, that which is uh, true and straight teaching, representative of, of biblical teaching, and that which is not. So what we're saying is what is taught Here's what we're representing is actual orthodoxy, and that which is contrary to it is heterodoxy, it is a different kind of teaching, a different teaching. Next, it draws lines and circles. What do we mean by that? That, phra that phraseology is not original to me, but it tells us where the boundaries are, but it also tells us there are places where we can only say this specific. We're only willing to make this specific a statement on that topic, and you may fall somewhere in there, right? That... that it, it shows where, 
we're only going to be this specific on this particular thing because we, we don't believe the Bible is more specific than that. You may believe within this aspect of the circle and someone else believes over here. Here's the circle where you have freedom of difference in belief and you might hear taught differently, etc. So there are going to be circles drawn as well as the, the lines that are the boundaries, right? Areas for doctrinal diversity. And then finally, it establishes clarity and continuity with the past. In other words, it locates us in church history. Are we novel? Are we new? Did we come up with something new? Um, or are we uh, consistent with the past? And it also lays out where we are on the spectrum of evangelical churches. How alike are we or different from other churches? Where do we fit? Oh, we're just evangelical. Well, you know that's a big, big term, right? And so it, it's, it spells it out. Number seven, should a confession describe where the congregation is or what it is growing towards? Should a, should a confession describe where the members of the congregation are? Or should it describe that which they are aspiring to? You understand the difference there? So one, one way of thinking says, all right, we, we come together in church. We've got people who became Christians two weeks ago. And we've got people who are, have been Christians for decades who have studied their Bible, they've taught, they've maybe been educated and whatnot. Do we boil down and we go for uh, what's in common between those people? And we just describe, uh, we represent and describe how our church is, what our church, what is believed by the breadth of the members in our congregation right now? It, it, it should be somewhere we're going, right? The person who became a Christian two weeks ago, they, they might believe the Trinity, they don't get it. <laughs> we, we don't really get it, but we, we know some boundaries. And we, know some, we know some greater specificity on the topic, right? And so we want to describe those boundaries, and we want to say, well, here is the Trinity, and here's what's involved, and here's what's not involved, and, and et cetera. And, and the person who is a new Christian or a growing Christian or whatever, that we should be aspiring to that, right? And so our position is that a doctrinal statement ought to describe where we are going, what we are growing towards. It should set the bar high and not low. We're trying to aspire to it and not give just a description of what is true of what we believe in this moment representative of the entire body, right? I don't know that I'm going to have enough time to go through eight here. What are the strengths and weaknesses of having a more minimal versus a more thorough confession? Do you understand what I mean by that? A minimal confession is going to hit on these few bullet points. Give this brief description. It's going to be very minimal. A maximal statement or a fuller statement like what you have in your hand there is going to go in much greater detail on those topics and on many, many others, right? And, and part of what uh, we have come to see is that doctrinal minimalism um, doesn't teach God's people how to think about any non-primary issue. What we're saying is only these four things or only these eight things. This is the tendency in churches nowadays, right? It's, it's never been the case at Parkside, <clears throat> but it's definitely the case broadly in evangelicalism. You'll have a, you know, you'll go to a church website and you'll find five points of doctrine. These are the things they think are important. Well, so they're going to teach their people perhaps how to think on those five topics and on nothing else. So if it's not on, on that uh, brief list, the people are, are ill-prepared, ill-equipped to know how to think about it, Right? So the result is that God's people will still decide what they believe in those areas, but they've just not been taught how to think in those areas. So they're going to come up with, with ill-informed, uninformed, misinformed 
opinions on those kinds of things, right? And so, uh, nor have they been trained to process or, um, uh, or, or the manner of working through doctrinal differences. They've not been taught how to discuss and not fight with one another on doctrinal differences, right? A more thorough and specific statement teaches those things. Secondly, doctrinal minimalism doesn't reflect what will really be taught. You go to a church that has a five-point doctrinal statement, they teach on more than five things. Guarantee it. They'll teach on more than five things, but you just don't know what they're going to teach. And if the pastor changes, you don't know what you're going to get. And if you come in and you believe something different, it might be a while before you realize that, wow, uh, the thing that was important to me but was not on this list of five, they teach exactly the contrary, right? And so a more thorough and specific statement makes plain what will be taught. It lays it right out there so you can look and see, right? Uh, in short, a thorough confession or doctrinal statement protects the congregation from the whims of the preacher. This is a concern for me as the preacher, <laughs> that you have protection from me and my whims. And likewise, it protects the preacher from the congregation. Okay? Uh, it, it's, a, it's a protection. Guidelines, boundaries, helpful um, 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 protection for us. All right, so then the natural question, what is the relationship between a church's confession and its membership? Right, if we're saying, we're, if we're saying we want to adopt the 1689 and we're saying that, that in order to be a member here, what must be your relationship with that confession? You agree with it? All of it? Understand it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a, that's an excellent way to put it. Just for the sake of time, I'm gonna we're gonna land right there. But that's exactly right. That what what you're doing is you, you, we don't expect everyone to understand that document thoroughly immediately. We we want to grow that direction. We want to teach according to it. We want people to be growing into an understanding of uh, of the doctrine taught in that confession, right? But you don't have to have arrived at that point before you can ever become a member of the church. What you're saying is, what we're saying is, this is the doctrine that will be taught here, and you can expect that. If, if you are willing, there are other things involved too, but as it relates to the confession, you're willing to be taught these things. That's what you're going to hear from the pulpit. Then that's, then, then, then that's you. That's your relationship to that confession. And on the other side of that, if you don't believe something in there, well, you're, you're, you're willing to hear it taught, you're willing to submit to the teaching, um, and you're not going to go on the sideline and say, well, they're wrong here, and, and so let's get together and form this group, and, and I'm going to teach you why they're wrong. And this, See what I mean? That's a faction. That, that starts creating factions and whatnot, right? So there's a relationship with the confession itself that says we are going to submit to it. Does it demand that you believe every jot and tittle of it? I don't think, I don't think you're going to understand every jot and tittle of it well enough to say you believe it or don't. Right, especially uh, when we're first adopting it. If you grew up with it or, or, or whatnot, then I, we, we would have that conversation. And certainly, um, but w when we talk about the membership itself, that's what we're talking about in regard to the confession, okay? Now, I had a couple of obje objections here that we'll try and fit in uh, at a later time, but for the sake of uh, time now, I want, to, want us to end. So you see, we didn't get into the confession itself. I kept my word, um, but... Um, that introduces why confessions are important. It was, it was said to me, you know, over the last two or three months, 
you know, why don't we just have the Bible as our creed? Isn't the Bible enough? Well, of course the Bible's enough, but what does it mean? What does it teach? There are people who say they believe the Bible who believe you can lose your salvation and those who believe that, that uh, God is sovereign over salvation is something that can't be lost. There are those who say they believe the Bible who believe that, uh, that baptism gives you eternal life. And there are those who, who say they believe the Bible who believe that no, baptism is a representation of what Christ has already done internally in you. It's a very different, different thing. There are those who say they believe the Bible who want to ordain women. And there, there are those who say they believe the Bible who say, no, we can't ordain women according to the Bible. So it doesn't solve anything just to hold up the Bible and say we teach the Bible. We've got to represent and show our colors. This is what we mean when we say that. When we say we believe the Bible, we believe it teaches this on this topic and this on this topic. And here's the detailed description. We're laying out our colors, okay? And so doctrinal statements, and particularly confessions, historic confessions that have stood the test of time are, are vitally important. And so that's why we're spending time studying. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you have given us your word, that you have given us your spirit within us. Thank you that you have given us generations who've gone before, who had your word and your spirit within them, and, and they uh, have fought battles that we don't have to, and they have told us about them so that we can avoid them, and we can benefit from what you have taken them through. I pray, Father, that we would uh, learn the lessons of, uh, of the church learn the lessons of your word as it has been taught and even as it has been mistaught and we have learned from that. But Father, we are grateful most of all for Jesus, our Savior. We look forward to worshiping you because of him in just a few minutes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.